Happy Easter and welcome to Context. It's a little bit different Easter this week all across our nation as uh, we don't attend our places of worship. I'm in front of St. Luke's here in Burlington, Ontario, where I live. St. Luke's was built in 1834 by an Irish priest. It was missionaries from Europe who came and brought Christianity to Canada in those early 1800s. And this particular church location was given to the priest from Mohawk Chief Joseph Brandt, an Aboriginal leader who held the territory here. And in our city, that historic gift has uh, a special designation that this church must always have a view of the lake. Exactly where our First Nations people fought with the British to create what we now have as Canada. And in most of our communities across Canada, you will find these closed churches a central part of our hearts, of Canadians' way, of gathering together to approach God. So this Holy Week, it's different. And at Context, we decided to take a look into our vault of some really important Easter stories that have shaped our hearts over the years. But just last year, take a look at what was happening during Holy Week on one of the world's most holy places of worship. Few tragedies stop us in our tracks like the destruction of ancient art that comforts us. The world looked on in horror this week as the roof and spire of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris went up in flames. As fire ravaged through the 850-year-old cathedral, onlookers wept, sang hymns, and prayed to cope with what was transpiring before their eyes. God's steadfast love and majesty, exquisitely adorned in places like the iconic Notre Dame, is not contained in a building. The Holy Spirit moves free to comfort and attract people to God in times of trouble. Today on Context, an Easter special on why hope is always rising and will never be destroyed. But the entire world was watching Notre Dame. And this may very well be a miracle. Anne Bersot grew up in the shadow of Notre Dame and she says she mourns for her beloved cathedral. And how did it feel to watch those dramatic images of Notre Dame on fire? You know, I was having my, uh, my lunch in the kitchen at EMCI TV and I couldn't believe it. It was like, it is impossible what's happening. What, I, I, I thought it was like, a, you know, a, a spam, an error. And, but it was starting on the, on the roof and it was going quick. So it was heartbreaking, really. And it's heartbreaking to watch all of you as uh, French citizens and how you've responded. You're, um, we saw those images on the street of the people crying, singing, praying, and you're both a TV producer and a minister of Christianity. What do you sense is happening spiritually in the wake of this fire? Well, you know, France has been... Uh really uh, de-Christianized for 100 years, for a 100 years now. And I think people realize seeing this treasure going into flames, into ashes, 
they realized that they were a Christian country at the basis. They were historically a Christian, um, a Christian country. And most of them had just forgotten that point, that important point. So we saw Christians uh, cry and uh, singing, but we also saw regular secular citizens and they were also crying and they realized that our roots are Christian. It's been a difficult time for Christianity. There's over 875 fires that were vandalism fires that were set in France in 2018. What is going on with, with, uh, with that kind of vandalism against Christianity? Yeah, it's new. It's new. You know, I, I immigrated to Canada 18 years ago, and when I was living in France, we'd never heard of such things. So it's new and it's alarming. Uh, I've heard that uh, in this year, in, from uh, January, we've already had 65 fires, 55 vandalism, uh, vandalized uh, churches, evangelical churches, and also uh, uh, Catholic churches. I think there is uh, three per day, three vandalized church per day. So it's a lot and it's a new phenomenon and it's alarming and the government is, uh, well, we don't hear a lot about it, but it's still here and uh, it's alarming. Okay, and the link has not been made that there was vandalism with Notre Dame's fire, but what does that great cathedral mean to the French people? You know, it means everything on two points. Um, for Christianity, it means some, something because it's the, the greatest Catholic symbol in France and also historically because every major historical events took place in Notre Dame de Paris and, and this for uh, a thousand years, well, 800 years. And uh, the, the kings were there, Henry uh, IV got married there and he converted to Catholicism there. Um, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, there was his coronation here. Um, when Second World War finished, it was in Notre Dame de Paris that the people celebrated. Every time we have national funerals, it's in Notre Dame de Paris. All the tourists go to Notre Dame de Paris. So for France, it's the heart of Paris. It's the heart of France. And it's even there that the first settlements were uh, made in, uh, well, 2000 years ago. So it is the heart of France that uh, went to ashes uh, the day before yesterday. So it's, um, it's dramatic. Well, to help with your hope this Easter, we're going to refer to some guests from my book, my recent book, For Your Health. And I want to introduce to you two science researchers who are in this book. And uh, we pulled you both into this story about hope because of your scientific background. Uh, Tommy Sue, you have been a science researcher, now turned pastor. And uh, Colin, you have been uh, a scientist that looked into physics. Physics was your, was your science background. And you now work with the Order of St. Luke, helping people with physical healing. Let's start though with the miracle that happened for you, Tommy. All right. My wife, uh, she had a a tumor around her ovary and um, and there were symptoms for many years but we never knew that it was because of tumor and when we arrived in Canada we went for some kind of checkup and we realized that it was there and um, after we knew about it we went back to the church and asked the church to pray for us and um, after a few weeks we went back for another checkup and it's just gone and um, we and together with the symptoms, which 
was with her for a long time, but it's all gone. And it helped you have a baby. And you, you, you've had a family, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some other miracles. But this, you as a scientist first said, wait, let's wait and just see. And it has yes. proved uh, yeah, my, through prayer. Yeah, my scientific mind was like, no, this cannot be true, right? Let's just wait and see. And then we waited, and it was really, all the symptoms was really gone. And we tried to do elimination in our mind. It's like the only logical conclusion we could come up with is, is God. God healed your God wife. God healed my wife. Okay, Dr. Colin Campbell, this happens. There are other types of healings. Uh, explain a little bit other than outside the physical healings. Mm -hmm. What else do we see? Well, the, um, I got into it uh, from a very rational uh, background, being a, a physicist. And I had an experience that um, uh, during the Eucharist, I, I saw this blue light. And uh, no one could explain what it was. So I went to uh, an Order of the St. Luke conference in Waterloo. And everybody's dressed in blue. So I went up to one of the... Uh, uh, a priest there and said, why are you dressed in blue? And he said, blue is the color of healing. So I got into the Order of St. Luke and there are physical healings such as Tommy experienced. The one I find most common is spiritual healing. So for example, people who have depression or anxiety or mental health problems. Are you mm. saying this is completely compatible that there is, uh, God is above what you explain scientifically, there is healing that mm. happens physically? Emotionally, the science I was brought up with was what was called mechanism, where where God is excluded from a providential role, and the experience I had was God gave me that because it was quite clearly not explainable in scientific terms. All right, both of you, thank you very much for your insight as a science background, but having experienced mm -hmm. God interrupting and bringing hope. Thank you. Well, Context will be back with some of our favorite stories from our Easter vault, including Dr. Koenig from Duke University with great medical evidence that belief in God is good for your health. Well, let's take hope a little personal now, and science actually has some help for us on this. Hope, religion, and your health. Dr. Harold Koenig studies this at Duke University Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health. Dr. Koenig, how does belief in God affect a person's health? Well, Lorna, it affects it in many ways. It influences a person's attitude towards different experiences in life that might be traumatic and, and hard to deal with. It influences your social environment and it involves, it, it affects people's behavior that ultimately leads to well-being and hope and a sense of peace and a sense of meaning and purpose in life. So it really affects it in many, many different ways that one might consider to be psychological, social, and behavioral. Okay, so it brings hope. Does it actually, does belief in God bring healing, physical healing? I think, I think that it does. I think that having belief in God 
gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and hope, as you said, which then affects your body physiologically. It affects your blood pressure, your immune system. It can affect your heart. And many, many studies show that uh, it can affect longevity. So people who are more religious, who have a deeper faith in God, just seem to do better across the board in terms of their mental health in terms of their social health, and in terms of their physical health. So this isn't um, kind of an abstract thing. Your research actually shows the deeper you go in the knowledge and facts of your faith, the better it is for your physical health. Yeah, I, I, I think that, again, the key is, is, you know, the depth of your faith and the extent to which your religious faith directs your actions in life. To what extent it directs how you treat other people, how you think of yourself, and and how you go about life. It, if, if it affects your behavior and your thoughts and your actions, then it's going to affect your physical health in, in like I said, in many different ways. Okay, you know? Dr. Koenig, I, uh, thank you. I, I wrote, uh, as we've shared, uh, you are quoted in my book, For Your Health. I, I really appreciate your research that you've brought some science to this business of our health and the hope we can have that a spiritual connection in a personal way with the God who cares for us makes a difference. Thank you. It does indeed. Thank you. Easter morning exists because Jesus appeared and was raised from the dead over 2,000 years ago. At that time, eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus but does Jesus appear to people like you and me today? Our next guest has investigated the claims, and he says yes. Professor Philip Weeb, welcome to Context. Thank you. Great. You've got an uh, academic book out uh, with Oxford Press on visions of Jesus from the New Testament to today. But this book that we're going to talk about today is for people like the rest of us. You place strategic advertisements, starting with the New York Times, mm to ask people if they had seen a vision of Jesus. What kind of responses did you get to that advertisement that ran in newspapers? Yes, I got 30-odd uh, 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 responses from people, and uh, they range in, in their character. Some are like what we would expect the post-resurrection appearance accounts to look like, but others are more... Uh, trance-like and dream-like in experience. And I, I put the experiences into five groups because they had uh, varied uh, amounts of uh, realism in them. Okay, you listen to those stories. Let's talk about the realism versus hallucinations. How mm -hmm. could you tell these just weren't hallucinations? People were having, like, I think I see something in my cereal. Yes, yes. Well, I wanted people who were awake, or at least they thought they were, <laughs> and their eyes were open, and uh, a being appeared, and they identified the being as Christ, and the experience had some uh, great significance for them, and they weren't trying to generate it by uh, uh, certain uh, ascetic practices like abstaining from food or not sleeping or in other ways depriving uh, themselves of sensation. Okay, because I recognized um, 
Uh, well, I recognize one of the persons in the story because of Hebron Ministries, which is a yes. famous prison ministry. Yes. So you, you had experiences like Ernie Hollins, yes. who saw Jesus in a prison cell, to just the nice mom who saw him at the kitchen table one yes. day. To give us one of your favorites. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, I've got a couple of favorites. I like the story of Barry Dick, who was a, a student at a Bible college just uh, 15 miles from where I live, and he went to Mount Baker to ski. And uh, it was a bit warm that day. His goggles fobbed, fogged up, and he went over a 50-foot embankment. That's his estimate. Anyway, when he hit the bottom, the skis... Uh, uh, shattered vertebrae at the base of his neck and he was taken to hospital in Bellingham and uh, on the eighth night uh, he was awakened by someone standing at the foot of his bed and he immediately thought it was Christ and uh, Barry begged to die because his pain was excruciating and uh, let's call him the Lord. I mean, that's maybe presuming a bit too much. But anyway, uh, the Lord extended his arms toward Barry, and Barry grabbed them. Uh, he was instructed not to move, but uh, I asked him, so did you feel your hands touch what you saw them touch? So uh, that requires that uh, kind of... Uh, a unity or uniformity between visual and tactile sensation. And there's also the movement of the arm. He said it was just like, uh, just like touching an ordinary person. And he was completely like wired up. He had the neck brace up. on in mm -hmm. the hospital. Yes. He's not supposed to even not be. To move. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he was healed, yeah. actually. He begged he... to die, and in the morning he discovered that he was healed. It took him a day to convince doctors to release him, and within a week he was back running his uh, five miles a day or whatever. You, you've also got a, a collection, which is also in the academic book, of how this happened through history. Yes. So help me connect the dots. Do we consider those um, trustworthy? Well, uh, yes, the, the issue of trustworthiness is an important one, and it's a difficult one in the whole area of religious experience. Um, a very important phenomenon in the last 35 years or so has been near-death experience. When it initially came out in 1975, people didn't accept it, very skeptical. By the year 2000, that skepticism had disappeared. Uh, everyone conceded that near-death experience does take place, and there were hundreds of thousands of accounts from around the world. So that's what counters skepticism okay. ultimately. Let's take it to the ultimate skepticism, yeah. and that goes right back to the historic person of Jesus. Yes. And did he rise from the dead? What evidence is there that those New Testament accounts are scientifically trustworthy. Yes, so there are two th items of evidence. Uh, one is that a being is seen after his death that seems to be identical to the one put to death. And I argue in the book that there is a continuing history right through the centuries. Uh, second thing involving resurrection is that uh, there can't be a body anywhere. 
after a resurrection, a resurrection that no one witnessed. Uh, it's curious that that's what Christian faith uh, begins with. Uh, well, and this is why I, I think the shroud's interesting. Well, and you have had a very fascinating history of your own <laughs> with the shroud. So here's a bit of science that yeah. seems to back the resurrection up. Yeah. Tell us why you are convinced that the shroud of Turin is authentic evidence mm -hmm. that this shadowed body we see yes. on this famous cloth is indeed evidence of Jesus's resurrection. The markings of blood on, on the shroud correspond wonderfully to gospel accounts. Uh, the second thing, this has been known only in the last five years, there are flower images all over the shroud and seen under ultraviolet light, uh, their shape and character can be determined. They're all from Israel. Uh, third point, most of the pollen on the shroud, uh, it gets embedded from being borne by the wind and so on, but most of the pollen is from Israel. And then the, uh, the last, the fourth thing I would say is that tremendous mystery about how the image of the man uh, is created because we can't do that with our technology. It's a bit of scarring of the linen, that's all it is, but the markings are so fine, if it was done by paint, say, it would be a painter using a brush with a single hair and daubing a color and reversing light and dark on a body. That's, that's technically impossible. I love how at the end of your book, you had to really wrestle with doing this the personal way. You had to say, <laughs> well, what were you, and, and what did you conclude? Well, yes, the shroud um, means a lot to me. It might not to others. Uh, when I saw it in 2000, I didn't really expect anything. I only went because I was lecturing and people in audiences would challenge me. But uh, something spoke to me and uh, the voice said, the resurrection's real, Philip. And it said it <laughs> just like that, friendly. And then the second was, uh, it was an if-then, which are curious statements. But if this man had such a remarkable end to his life, the very remarkable beginning is possible. And that's when I, I realized I'd never believed the virgin birth and I never expected to. Uh, I was going to be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth. The creeds didn't have that much power over me. And frankly, the Bible was only slowly, slowly growing on me. So, so that's, uh, I, that's a very important moment in my life. And he used the shroud to get through, I guess, a thick skull. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and this Easter, what would you recommend we do with the story that Jesus has risen from the mm, dead? Yes. I, I think in our busy lives, we don't wait enough, but wait on him. He has something special for each of his followers, even if it isn't a vision. Thank you very much. Dr. Philip Weeb is the author of the new book, Visions and Appearances of Jesus. We've explored Easter this episode, but to help us get it right, let's close things off in the wrap with context blogger and professor of religious studies at Crandall University, John Stackhouse. 
John, help us with the meaning of Easter. It is about help for the human race, right? Can you explain that? Well, it really is, Lorna. I mean, I think when we ask the big questions, we realize that what we need, each of us and all of us, is moral help with all the sin and all the, the mischief and all the wreckage behind us, morally speaking. And we need physical help against the great barrier of death. And we need political help to know how to look after each other and to get along with each other in this world and whatever world there is to come. And in Easter weekend, we have the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and a few weeks later, the ascension of Jesus to heaven. And that's why Christians call him Savior and Lord, because he brings us forgiveness. He shows us we're going to get new life if we will trust him for that. And he is the one who will help us now and in the world to come to solve the political problems that seem otherwise to bedevil us. And so this precious week where we focus on that unique message, I actually thought when uh, we covered the, the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral and we saw with such global relief that the altar and the cross was undamaged in the Notre Dame fire of Easter week, remind us the meaning of that cross and altar configuration. Well, it's so powerful, isn't it, that this very week, this tremendous disaster has made us look at this giant tourist attraction and think, what's it really for? And of course, what it's really for is to focus the attention of Paris and France and this week the world on the self-giving of God for all of us in order that we don't have to keep living the way we're living, that there can be a better life and God is ready, willing and able to give it to us. And your blog this week, it wasn't the blog I expected, John, on context, but you wrote about hell, about the fire of hell. You actually think that's the greatest message that we can help people realize they don't have to be separated. Explain why you wanted to do hell. Well, hell is the, is the good news that all that's bad in the world is not going to be there forever, that God is going to take care of it and he's going to remove it from the universe. We all hope that's the case. Hell is the Christian doctrine that it will be the case. And we can avoid it if we will let God do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the big question. Will we let him help us or do we insist on going our own way? Professor John Stackhouse, thank you. Good to be with you, Lorna. Well, those have been a look at some of our favorite stories from our Easter vault. And Christians celebrate that death is not the end. That's the core of the Christian message. Death is not the end because Jesus overcame the grave. He laid down his life and was resurrected to new life and said, now death is finished. The sting of death is done. We've had a lot of fear about death. I've been reading stories, headlines, the Globe and Mail medical reporter saying now is the time to talk about death. 
because COVID-19 has required us to do it. You cannot talk about death without talking about your spiritual care. And will you accept the free gift that God offers of life everlasting, of a new life in heaven after the curtain of death has been drawn? So we've put some great tools on our website to help you begin those spiritual discoveries. Don't go into Easter this year without knowing the eternal gift of Jesus for your life today and for your life after death in heaven. From all of us at Context, I'm Lorna Dewig. Happy Easter.